Good evening. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 31. We are going to finish the book of 1 Samuel today. We are going to be going into 2 Samuel afterwards because really there was only one book. Um, there wasn't 1 and 2 Samuel. We divided the books. I don't know why they did, but they did. Uh, but we're going to just naturally flow right into 2 Samuel. Um, but this is, a, a, I guess, a marked place where it ends because of what takes place here in this chapter where we see the death of Saul. Now, we've been on this journey. I mean, it started off with the prophet Samuel, really the last of the judges. And from the last of the judges, we moved into this place where now Israel has its first king, which is Saul. Saul starts off pretty good and then falters is succumbed by the power, the pride, uh, status, those kinds of things. And so it becomes a stumbling block, not only for him, but for the nation. As he takes with him the nation into places of rebellion, gives into them where he was supposed to destroy utterly the Amalekites, but didn't. And Samuel says, the, the kingdom has now been torn from you and given to another. Samuel goes by God's direction and finds David, Jesse's son, anoints him to be king, but this is still while Saul is king, which is kind of strange management, if you think about it, you know, like, God, just wait, wait till he dies and then bring, anoint David. That's not God's plan. God anoints David before Saul is off the throne because the spirit has been removed from Saul. And so David is brought in to this, and there's a number of instances, of course, the Goliath incident where David is filled with faith, slays the giant, comes into the king's court, sings and plays music for him, becomes very renowned as a, a warrior, and songs are being written. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, which brings jealousy to Saul. Now Saul is trying to kill David for years. He's pursuing him. David flees to the land of the Philistines to escape Saul's rule. Saul is hunting him down. We've seen a couple of close encounters in this regard. And then last time we talked about how David was going to go fight with the Philistines. Some divine intervention took place. He was told to go back home, goes to Ziklag, finds his home burnt. The women and the children and everything they own is taken. And so in his time of despair, he encourages himself, finds strength in the Lord, pursues the Amalekites, gets back everything, and then even generously gives some to the areas of in Judah, kind of setting up what is going to be his kingdom soon. Right before the battle between the Philistines and Saul, which is what we have before us today. So in 1 Samuel chapter 31, starting at verse 1, and we're going to read through the whole chapter. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, 
and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. The Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shun. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Beth Shan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Beth Shan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a Tamascus tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Dark passage of scripture. As we come to the end of Saul's life, we we can't help but just feel what a tragedy. What we've seen is just the decline of this man. And coming to this point, it, it brings sorrow because of where he was at the time of his death. It's an interesting thing that what happens in a person's life follows them. But we can always change the direction of our life. I think of Saul who started off as king and then became the enemy of God in a sense, pursuing David, trying to kill David in fear for his life, seeking mediums, desperate despair and this kind of depression to this place where he kills himself in battle. And now as you look back at Saul, the end of his life has been the mark of his life. And contrast that to Saul of Tarsus, who was going throughout the region killing those who named Christ as their Lord. Killing Christians, pursuing them, destroying them, comes to a conversion, encounters Jesus, calls himself now Paul instead of Saul, and ends up being this incredible giant of the Christian faith. And so, whereas Saul started off well and ended poorly, and we remember him poorly, Saul of Tarsus started off poorly but ended well, and we remember him well. 
that should be encouragement to us if there's still breath in our lungs that we can still finish well. That we can still live lives that have meaning, purpose, and can look back on and say, that was a person who followed God, who changed the world around them because of who they were for the good. But here is it isn't the case. This is a tragic story. I mean, we know this was going to happen. When Saul went to the medium and conjured up Samuel from the grave, Samuel said, you're going to die tomorrow. You and your sons are all going to be with me in the grave. So this was foretold. This was going to happen. So it's not a surprise, but it's still a tragedy, especially as we see, you know, some of what took place. I mean, including his son, Jonathan, because Jonathan was such a great example. He was such a neat young man. Jonathan was someone who was going to serve with David. At least that's what he told David, but that wasn't the case. And so it's heartbreaking. And imagine seeing your son struck dead in battle. And and as the battle is fierce, an arrow from the Philistines strikes Saul and it's critical. And so he knows he's going to die, but he's not dying quickly. So he asks his armor bearer, kill me now. Otherwise, they're going to come and they're going to do worse. The armor bearer says, I can't. I just can't. He cannot do it. He's afraid. And so Saul kills himself. Now, this is one of, at least that I was aware of, finding seven examples of people who have actually killed themselves in Scripture. We find another example of uh, Abimelech in Judges chapter 9, Samson in Judges uh, 16. Although he killed himself, he killed others with him to defeat those who imprisoned him. Here, Saul and his armor bearer, Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 17, in despair over the deception that was being just perpetrated around him. And then Zimri in 1 Kings 16 to avoid capture by the army. And so suicide is not an uncommon thing in Scripture. There's these accounts that happen. And it's so um, interesting. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's the only word that comes to mind. As even in the past month, I think there were three suicides that I was aware of with people who I knew. And you think, oh my gosh, that's just tragic. It's a terrible thing when you see someone come to a place where they take their own life. Now let me ask you guys some questions because suicide is something that is very controversial in some places. Some places like the Catholic Church have uh, named suicide as what they call it a, a mortal sin where if you kill yourself, then you can't go to heaven. Um, What are your thoughts on suicide and just what you have seen from people, the scriptures, short examples of it? you have any thoughts about suicide? Or maybe I should ask this. Do any of you think that suicide is an unpardonable sin? And if so, why? It's murder, so... 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, here in Saul's case, I mean, but in those kind of circumstances where someone is in a desperate situation, they're, you know, going to be tortured, butchered, feels it's okay to kill himself rather than go through that punishment. Um, is that still selfish? Yes, Corinne. When we lose hope, then there's no reason to live. And although it's an act that seems selfish to all those around that person, to that person, if there is no hope to live, then it's not a matter of others around me or not. It's a matter of there's not reason for me to live. And it's terrible that a person would be without hope. And you could say that, yes, it's a sin because God is always with us and is there to give us hope, even though the the future might not change, um, like in Saul's case or in some of the others here in Scripture. But it's a place of being without faith to a certain extent with God. But God does forgive. God does not judge us without being aware of our condition and our circumstances. Um, I know uh, one of my cousin's husbands uh, killed himself. And here was a man who suffered depression greatly. Um, This was years ago. Um, I don't know if they diagnosed all the things that he was going through, but had incredible uh, counts of depression that affected how he saw himself and his future. And when he saw that there was no hope, he felt that the best thing he could do was take his life so that he could leave his insurance to his family. His family is horrified by you know what happened, struck by it. But, and to them, it's like, no, we don't want this of you. In his mind, this was the only course he could take. God doesn't judge anyone without being aware of their circumstances and their frailty and their condition. And so the whole idea of it being a mortal sin and a sin that God can't forgive, it's just, to me, foolish. God can forgive any sin. And this is no greater a sin than, you know, David's murder of Uriah, and David was forgiven. And so it's not like this is unpardonable. Um, It's tragic. It always is tragic. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that someone wouldn't see life as worth living. And those kinds of things are, are what haunt and trouble me. I think of Deuteronomy 30 where the Lord says, I set before you, you know, blessing and cursing, life and death. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. There's always that choice and God is always telling us, choose life. Choose life. Because there is something in life itself that is connected to God, that is connected to hope, that is supposed to give us that desire to move on and live forward. 
You know, it troubles me even when I hear Christians talk, oh, I just can't wait for life to be over and I can go be with the Lord. I'm like, especially when that's said in that circumstance when someone has lost someone they've loved and they don't quite understand. It's like, I can understand wanting to be present with the Lord. And yes, that's a great thing. But this is a gift from God. Life is a gift, and it's to be treasured, and it's supposed to be lived fully, and it's supposed to be enjoyed, and it's supposed to accomplish great and wonderful things within us and through us. And many times what happens is when we lose that connection, it becomes very fatalistic, and pretty soon it's just... I can't do anything, I can't do anything, I can't do anything. I I remember one time going to pray for a woman who was dying of cancer. And I went into her uh, house. She was in hospice care there at the house. And she was in a wheelchair. And I remember praying for her, and she just seemed out of it to me. She just didn't seem like she was really there. And so I thought, okay, you know, I guess I'll pray for her, but... I was, I was expecting to get out of there pretty quick. You know, I was in there, said my hellos, I mean, and hi, everyone, and I'll pray for her. And they just kind of left me there with the, the grandmother and the mom of this family. And so I sat there, and I was just praying in front of her. I don't remember what I was praying, just asking the Lord to touch her, have mercy, heal her. And when I opened my eyes, she was like two inches from my face. And I kind of opened my eyes because I think I felt or smelt or something, her right there. And all of a sudden, she was just right there. And I was like, oh, hi, you know, hello. And I remember her just telling me, my husband cries at night because of me and my condition. And she repeated that. And just with this pain in her voice, my husband cries because of me. And I remember thinking, I don't, I don't know what to say. I, I wasn't, I didn't go through this class. I don't, I'm, my pay grade isn't this scale. I don't know what to say to her. And I remember being prompted by God to tell her that she's still useful. And in fact, I told her, I said, but you can still pray for your husband. And you can still pray for your children and for your grandchildren. You're not without purpose to God. And I remember just sit after I said that, I thought, well, that was pretty good. You know, God, <laughs> I'm hoping that was you because I, I felt like that came because I didn't know what to say. And then I was, you know, those things where you're just kind of crossing your fingers, hoping it went well. And she just kind of sat back and said, that's true. She said, I want to go for a walk now. And they strolled her out. And I was like, it was just one of those experiences for me. I was like, oh, my gosh. But you see, if we don't recognize of our life as being value and of use, then it becomes hopeless. And that's tragedy. Because even in her condition, she could still be of use praying and caring for those, even though it was difficult for them to see her in that condition. Unfortunately, when people don't see their life as use for others, to them it seems it's better if I'm just gone. 
and it is tragic and it is selfish to those who love them, but in their minds, it's the only way because my life no longer has purpose. And so this is a tragic end to the first king of Israel. It's tragic because his sons died. He saw and witnessed that. He kills himself. His armor bearer respected him more than he respected himself at that point. But then when he killed himself, his armor bearer said, okay, I guess that's it for me too. And also took his life as well. And so they died there at that time. And so after Saul dies, the battle isn't going well. They are losing and the Philistines start to conquer. And when everyone sees that they're being defeated, they see that Saul, his sons are dead. They all hightail it out of there. Get your stuff. We're getting out of the town. And the Philistines start to occupy the town. And what's tragic is, you know, Saul didn't want to be disgraced. He didn't want to be tortured, didn't want to be abused. But then after he kills himself, he still is disgraced. They chop his head off and they actually send his head to the different towns because they're telling everyone, look at this is the the head of the king of Israel. And so they were kind of setting it all over the place. And then they took his body and then they nailed his body there on the wall so that it was an example there in Gilboa for everyone to see. They, they take his armor, they put it in their temples of worship, and it's just this boasting of their victory. Um, and it's just a tragic tragic series of events but it doesn't end that way and and even though the end of Saul's life is very tragic there's this little bright spot in verse 11 when it says when the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan, they took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Now, do you guys remember Jabesh Gilead at all? Do you remember that earlier? Turn with me to chapter 11. Let's recount these people. In chapter 11... Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. So that's, that's your options. You want a treaty? It costs you the right eye. We talked about the right eye would just make them defenseless. As a man fighting, if you didn't have your right eye, you were pretty much, you were a goner. Because you'd hold your shield with your left to block it, and you could see with the right eye, if your right eye is gone, you can't, you got to put your shield down, it's just a handicap. And so they're going to take out the right eye. The elders of Jabesh said to them, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. And we talked about the people of Jabesh Gilead, 
had at one time abandoned Israel. When in Judges, I won't go into the whole account, they were the only tribe and the place in the nation that didn't come to the aid of some atrocities that were done. And so because of that, they were ousted and they were looked on as not even part of the, the nation. And so now Naash the Ammonite would say, yeah, you can ask all you want. You guys aren't loved by anybody, basically. No one wants anything to do with you. When the message, messenger came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? And then they repeated to them what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they came out as... Where am I? People. Now then they stand here because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord. Am I in the right chapter? No, I'm sorry. There I am. Okay. Sorry. Got to get used to this thing. He took a pair of oxen, cut them down into pieces, sent them pieces, messengers. This is what will be done to the ox of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people. They came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the name, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. And so what happens here is Saul marches all night with this troop and rescues Jabesh Gilead. And so back in chapter 31, what we see here is the people remembering what Saul had done for them. This was 40 years prior. 40 years and they still remembered. The good that we do for others comes with dividends. If we do good it goes into our account, not only with God, but with people. Maybe you have things that you can remember or people that you remember who have helped you out. I know recently I was going through cleaning out my desk and I came upon a card of someone who had given to Corrine and I, and I remember just the time and how thankful I was for this gift towards us. And it was just a reminder of that goodness from this friend and what they have done. And those things don't go unnoticed. They don't go without having an effect. And what Saul did 40 years ago was remembered by the people of Jabesh Gilead all these years later. And they wanted to make sure that his body wasn't disgraced. And so they marched through the night, just like Saul did for them, took the body down, 
and then they burned them, him and his sons. Now, this is the first and only time that cremation is mentioned in Scripture, and it's probably because who knows how long the bodies were up there. They probably decayed, and it was probably a pretty gruesome thing that was done, and so there was really no way of burying them honorably, and so they just burned them, but they also took the bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and then they fasted. In other words, they just remembered and grieved for seven days. Isn't it nice to know that even when our life has this tragic end that Saul's did, that there are people who remember the good that you did. That in their minds, the tragedy of Saul wasn't what they held on to. It was that time when he did good for us. And they remembered it. They showed him honor, took his bones back to them, and that buried them there, gave him honor in that place, and remembered and prayed and fasted for seven days. And I just, I think that's such a picture of hope, especially in this conversation of suicide, to recognize that even when people take their lives, it doesn't mean their lives were not of value to God or to others, and that it had enough impact where they would want to remember, that they would want to honor, that they would be able to acknowledge the good of that person's life for them. And I just think it's a beautiful way for God to kind of bring this understanding to bear at the end of this tragedy, where he brings this hopefulness that our lives can and do matter to other people, even when they don't seem to matter to us. Any thoughts just on this passage of Scripture or or these things that we've talked about? Any questions just about Saul or what's going on here? No, he killed all the priests, too. He, He had some bad moments. But, well, let me ask this question. Because this is something that people always debate, and we won't settle it here. But a lot of times people want to know, well, did Saul go to heaven? What do you guys think? Don't think so. Now, what would make it so that he couldn't go to heaven? Why wouldn't Saul be able to go to heaven? What would what would it be that would say he can't go to heaven? And this is, I think, important because we need to understand the character of God. You see, I don't know if he went. Who? No one does, right? God knows. But I think it's important for us to examine why we would say yes or why we would say no. Yeah, I mean, there is a place where if you deny the Lord, He He will deny us. If we don't forgive as He's forgiven us. Um, you know, we will be judged as we judge. There's a lot of things in that regard. I think it's important to recognize, and I think, Alex, you're, you're on that right topic, that a person can have faith, albeit small, misguided, and skewed. God is gracious. God is very gracious. And 
even a person who does horrific things like Saul did, that's not what disqualifies a person. David did horrific things, and he was not disqualified. Saul of Tarsus did horrific things. He was not disqualified. What disqualifies a person is that they don't have faith in the living God, that whatever reason or whatever else their faith would be in, it would be apart from the living God. Now, Saul, before he died, sought a medium to try and hear from God. Now, that's not the way you're supposed to go about it. Okay, that was skewed. That was him and his crazy state of mind. But he was doing all he could to try and hear from God, which showed a sign of desperation. And I think of Jesus' words, if you knock, it will be open. If you seek, you will find. If you ask, it will be given to you. I think Saul's disqualification isn't so much the things he did, but it would be whether he really believed and trusted in the God of Israel. That's what would qualify him And that's really what qualifies anybody is when the revelation of who God is is given to us, however that is. So if you're in some remote part of uh, Africa and no missionary has ever come to your village, do you go to hell because you don't believe in Jesus when you never heard there was a Jesus? Or do you get judged based on the revelation of, you were given by whatever you were given that revelation by, whether it be creation, whether it be someone talking, who knows? You're judged by the revelation of what you've been given. Abraham was a pagan, living among pagans, but as soon as God spoke, he listened and obeyed, and he was judged for what he knew. We are judged for what we know. You're not judged for what you don't know. And it's important to understand that, that we're all responsible for the revelation of God that we've been given. It's important to understand, again, that that revelation comes to clarity in the person of Jesus, where Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so when a person sees clearly who Jesus is and rejects Jesus, they're rejecting the revelation of God. And they will be judged based on that. They put their trust and belief in something other than the true living God, and they'll be judged for those things. And I think it's important to have that kind of understanding and clarification because no one gets to heaven because they do good enough. No one gets to heaven because... They believe hard enough. People get to heaven because God has shown mercy towards them, has paid for their debt through the person of Jesus. Even if they didn't know about that completely, it's the sacrifice of Christ that cleanses us and makes mankind acceptable to God. So it's not good things that you do. It's not how much you believe. It's really what Jesus has done. And then the amount of knowledge and revelation we have based on what, you know, where we are and where that is will allow us to either put the faith in the right place or God will judge us accordingly. That makes sense? Anyone have any questions about that? Because, man, that took me a lot to say that. 
Yes, Mary. Well, no, I mean, that's kind of going, it's like you're better off to be ignorant, but your heart is still in the same place. In other words, just because you don't know more doesn't mean you're any less deceived. And so just because you don't have more information, you still might have enough information to be making a bad choice. Why would giving you more information about the right thing make you go the wrong direction? In other words, you're probably already in the wrong direction if you get more of the truth and deny it. Does that make sense? And so it's not like, well, don't tell me anything. Blah, blah, blah. I don't want to be a judge, you know. No, you're, we already stand. We all have to stand before God and all are going to be judged based on what we do know and what he has revealed to us through a lot of different things. And so they have to stand there. What if they are already standing judged? Why would more information be bad? It would only be good. The more clarity you get, the easier it is to make a better decision. And if they choose not to make a better decision, it's because they were already in probably a bad decision place. And so it doesn't seem like giving more information would cause more guilt. It would actually illuminate the guilt that is already there. And so it should give them opportunity to take the right direction as opposed to stay in the darkness. That's what I think. Crane, did you have your hand up? Nope. Yeah, when I get home, I'm going to be one in the morning. What about this? What about this? Any other thoughts on this? Again, I brought this subject up because it's in a lot of the commentaries, and they are about 60-40 that I read. 60% thought Saul was actually going to be with God based on, you know, his past and his belief in, in God, and even though he had gone into this place of uh, backsliding, whatever you want to call it, most of them felt that he had faith in the true God, and that was going to be what brought him into the presence of God. No, all the things, though, that God had done were a shadow. All the sacrifices were pointing to the promise to come, and so they died in the promise with the hope that the Lord was going to bring the Messiah and the Deliverer and the one who was going to deal with them. They didn't even see it, that someone was going to die for their sins. They just thought that this was how God dealt with their sins. And so they died believing that God was going to bring justification because of how they worshipped him according to his laws. No, and they still believe the same thing. In fact, they don't need to continue sacrifices because they believe that even through their law and uh, adherence to the law that that's what really God requires they don't see the necessity of continued sacrifices they see the comp- the keeping of the law as the sacrifice that God wants for them today that's how they see it and so yeah Danny I mean I think of the thief on the cross next to Jesus you know the last moment received just that forgiveness I just finished reading a book called Daring Greatly, and one of the things that the author, Brene Brown, she's um, she's a researcher, and what she did is researched for like nine years all these people who, um, what she calls, have wholeheartedness, who have lives that just seem to be filled with love and hope, 
And the one thing that she found in common with all of them was what she called uh, worthiness of love, that they felt that they were worthy to be loved. And the talk was, or her, her dialogue is a lot about shame, the difference between shame and guilt. You know, shame is like you, you, you skip out on uh, lunch, you forget to meet someone for lunch, and then you go, oh, and you call them up and you say, I'm sorry, I'm such a terrible person. That's shame. Guilt is, I'm sorry, that was a terrible thing to do. You see, one involves your character and who you are, and the other one is just about something you did. You know, we all have reasons to be guilty, but we all are worthy of love. And if we lose that understanding that you're worthy of love, then you will lose hope. And you will give in to the depression and the despair. And you will not be able to live and conduct yourself in a way that's what she called wholehearted. And it's pretty amazing just how this manifests in addictions and in other areas of our lives, just when we lose this idea of I'm worthy to be loved. It doesn't mean I'm deserving God's forgiveness because I've done enough good things. It's just I'm worthy of his love. And we are by means of his creation. You know, the reason God so loved the world is because he felt the world was worth loving. You know, are you worthy of God's love? Yeah, you are. Jesus died for you. That's enough. You don't have to say, well, no, because I'm this and that. Anyway, that's a different subject. Um, but yeah, that idea of, you know, desperation and not having hope, and it's a scary thing. Yeah. That's why in the spy movies, they give you the pill that you bite on, and yeah, the cyanide pill kill you. In, in his mind, that was that was his only choice. Now, it doesn't mean it was okay. It's just that's the that was what he saw. He saw that being a better choice than what was going to happen. You know, again, taking his life shows a lack of faith. Could God have delivered him? Could he have escaped? Who knows? Who knows? Um, again, I don't think God's going to judge him without that being in mind, so to speak. You know what I mean? God's not going to look at Saul and say, nope, shouldn't have done that, without knowing his desperation, his state of mind. And he, I think he thinks that way with everybody who takes their life. He doesn't just say, oh, that was bad, sin, boom. You know, I, I've heard some people say that, well, you know, you have to confess your sin to be forgiven, and if you kill yourself, then you can't forgive your sin. And I just think, oh, that's kind of hogwash because there's a lot of sins you probably don't even know you have or done, you didn't confess of, and now what do you do? You're, you're in trouble. Um, but, you know, it's just a tragedy, no matter way. Life is precious, you know, and this is just a tragic end to Saul's life. But any other thoughts? Okay, that was thoughtful enough. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of this book and this story of Saul, 
Lord, our hearts do go out to those who are in places of despair. And Lord, even as Danny shared, may we be able to speak hope into people's lives. Lord, those who are depressed, those who are discouraged, those who are far from you, those who do not yet know you, those who are blind to you, who are oblivious or even against you, may we be able to speak hope into their lives, Lord, even as you've spoken it into ours. May our lives be a source of hope where people would see us and how we live and how we love even them, and may we be a source of hope to the people around us. And Lord, I do lift up, again, those who are going through sorrow because of the loss of someone in this manner. Lord, may you bring comfort. May they understand that you are a God who cares and loves. And Lord, all your judgments are true and righteous. God, I don't know half of what is taking place in my own life, let alone in the lives of those around me. I am not in a position to judge, but I entrust all these things to you completely. I know that you are good and you are merciful, and we will not ever look at your judgments and say that wasn't right. And thank you for that confidence that we have in you. Pray you'd bless the rest of our evening, Lord. And again, be with Lola's friend who just lost her father. May you comfort her, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.